Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I'm your host, Aaron Cameron. With me, as always, Adam Pawatic. We've got a repeat guest. I'm excited about this conversation. This is the annual, and I will call it as an annual interview, annual episode on the emerging trends in real estate with Frank Magliocco, who is the national real estate leader at PricewaterhouseCoopers, sorry, PwC Canada, I think is the way that you prefer to be, be uh, referenced. You know, Frank, this is, I think, the fifth year we've done this now, the fourth year with you, I think. It's such an awesome episode because like, I mean, some of the stuff that you get out of your interviews and your, and your, your methods is, is just really, really interesting and, and a great conversation for us real estate nerds, commercial real estate nerds. This really is the kind of thing that you, you really just like to, you know, curl up on your couch on, in front of the fireplace in December and read. Uh, and I encourage everybody to do that. We'll, we'll, we'll tell everybody how to get it. But first and foremost, Frank, thanks for joining us again. Well, it's, it's great to be back. It's always fun talking to the both of you about real estate. You know, Frank, before we get into the content, I, I mean, just again, for those that maybe not familiar, why don't you just quickly cover why you do this, what it is, and just the, a quick maybe recap on the methodology to get sure. your statistics. Sure. So, you know, this is actually the 43rd year, believe it or not, that we've been producing emerging trends in real estate. It is the longest uh, real estate publication out there. And this year, we had 930 personal interviews across Canada and the US. There were 185 from Canada. And we interview the C-suite real estate professionals in all kind of verticals of real estate. And we also had 1,200 surveys, of which 375 were from Canada. A good cross-section of the executives right across Canada. This survey was taken during July and August of 2021. So you have to put that in context because it seems like a lot has been changing even after that. But it's relatively fresh is what we'll say. Basically, we derive this kind of forecast publication from the input that the C-suite real estate execs are telling us. And, you know, I always say that if these individuals, and they're all kind of named actually in the back of the report, so if you want to see who's being interviewed, if they can't tell you what's going to happen in real estate uh, in the next year or so, I'm not sure who can because they're the ones that are driving the trends out in the marketplace. I think Aaron and I have both participated before, at least at the survey level, which uh, it's always fun sharing your thoughts. And it, it is funny too, you mentioned you know, the time frame. In a, in a more normal time, you know, we could very easily have survey results from July and August and you know, discuss them at the end of the year and things would have largely not changed. But we're living in very rapidly evolving times. So it is, it's going to make it more difficult too, bit of a bit of a moving target. But you know, all that being said, it, it's, it's a great report. We are going to jump into some nitty gritty, get into some of the, the more interesting points of the graphs and charts and all that. But if you were to you know, boil down your, your, your key takeaways from the report this year, what were the overarching themes before we get uh, you know, granular here? Before I get to that, I wanted to share one of my favorite quotes that I kind of summarizes how people were thinking at this time. And, and this was a senior executive in a real estate company and says, you know, Back then, when we were doing the interviews of 18 in July, we said, after 18 months, we really witnessed a tidal wave of destruction caused by COVID, and then this subsequent tsunami of government support around us. And really, it's created a lot of uncertainty and created this murky crystal ball for real estate. Having said that, 
the prospects are much more positive than we thought. And to kind of talk about the broad things that I would say that we heard this year, I break it down into three. One was the changing world of work and the impact that that's having on the asset classes and specifically office, but also the housing, the prominence that ESG has come in the forefront in terms of real estate organization and how important and very, very key is beyond just kind of checking the box. This is about value preservation. And then the third thing was about cost and competition and the impact that it's having. And in the broadest sense, the cost of inputs, the cost of real estate, and just the competition, not only for deals, but also for labor. And I think if you talk to anyone in the real estate industry these days, and it's not just real estate, it's just broadly, the competition for talent, the war for talent that we've heard really has come front and center these days. And then underpinning these three broad trends that we heard loud and clear was the constant one that I'm not sure we can call a trend anymore because we've been talking about it year after year after year is affordability and how that is, you know, front and center. And I think it got a lot more brighter this year because of, you know, the social divide that we've seen and experiencing in the news, you know, the COVID's happened on those that are less fortunate. It really brought that to light in a big, big way this, this year around. Well, I'm just going to summarize, Frank, because I think it's just, it's just really interesting. Again, just given your purview and, and the way that you're collecting this data, as you indicated, just with interviews of sort of the C-suite of sort of leadership in our industry, ultimately came down to kind of three general trends, which was the evolution of the workforce or workplace, you know, office, however you want to define that, environmental, social, and governance challenges, issues, and values, and then cost and competition, right? Which is which is really, you know, capital and the challenges we're having with just rising costs. But however, with an underlying affordability challenge, right? And so, I mean, for our listeners, we're going to kind of, I think, digest or dissect in kind of generally that order. I think I have to do this just so that people understand in case it gets confusing. It's it's December 16th as we're recording today. We're in a bit of a weird world where all of a sudden there's this, I don't know, whatever it is, the nth wave that we're experiencing with Omicron and all that kind of stuff. So if you hear us talking, it's a little bit nuanced because of just kind of the, the circumstances of today and, and that your results were from, from July and August, where there was, I think, a, little, a lot of optimism in the world, right? Vaccinations were prevalent and the world was getting back to normal. And, and yep. so, so I think we have to just be transparent about timeframes because, you know, this is an ever, ever evolving world. So let's, let's start with the evolution of the office. Again, December 16th aside and what's going on right now, there is, regardless of where we end up with COVID, there's just a, a, a feeling now, I think, amongst everybody, and, and you tell us what, what your respondents ultimately discovered for you, but we're never going back to five days a week, everybody in the office, 8.30 to 5. Would that, was that, is that your sense? Absolutely. And I think that's a common thing. And I think what came out of our, it's interesting, when, when we talked about this early on, there were really two camps, right? There were those that felt fairly strongly that this was going to blow over and that we're going to go back to normal. And there were others that were firmly entrenched in the camp that said, this is a significant shift and this significant shift is going to be permanent. But, you know, if I could summarize the common view that we heard when I took it all together broadly, is that flexibility in approach is going to be the name of game. There's a push-pull happening right now. You know, business leaders want to bring people and employees back into the office, but staff are kind of hesitant to return. 
And so when you think about the significant war of talent that I mentioned earlier, it's going to be a really delicate balancing act for many on how they deal with that. But I can tell you that there's much more, what I'd say, people that are interested and in, in accepting of this. You know, I, I kind of just mentioned, you know, PwC in the U.S., and I say that because our Canadian partnership, you know, have approached it slightly different. They've gone out so far as to say staff, you know, choosing virtual can be a permanent option and you can work remotely from anywhere. So that's a permanent option if you want to take that. Recognizing how important that is. You know, here in Canada, we took it slightly differently. You know, I, I think what's clear is that employees want that flexibility. That's the underlying thing that we've heard. And we recently issued a new report, actually, our, our HC group and our consulting group, if you want to take a look at, that, that kind of looked at what is happening in terms of the shift that we're seeing in, in what people want. And it's actually shifted more preference towards fully remote work. So that was more interesting from my perspective that you know people want more of that. So I think it's going to be a really interesting time. It, where do I sit in that camp? You know, my own personal view is that flexibility is here to stay for, for many reasons. And, and I don't think we're going to go back to the nine to five, five days a week in the office. And I think there's going to be much more flexibility and approach. You know, you mentioned the, the war for talent and you know, there's, there's an interesting graph in the report. You know, it's under the heading of economic issues. You're, you're, it's the ranking of most important issues. Number one is labor continues to be an ongoing issue. Uh, so I, I, you know, the cynic in me wonders if, if there wasn't such a war for talent, if there wouldn't be more of a dictation that we're going back to the old way, we're going back to the office five days a week. I know that both you and Aaron occupy positions of uh, you know, leadership in respective companies. I won't ask for commentary on, on uh, PwC, but part of me does wonder if perhaps that uneven negotiation now between employer and employees kind of leading to maintaining this uh, evolved work style. But it does. The, the numbers do back it up. The labor is yeah. right at the very top of economic issues. For sure. And, and you know what? And that doesn't surprise me one bit in the sense of your view on that, because I think it'd be consistent with anyone you ask. You know, at this stage, like I said right at the beginning, it's, it's a delicate balancing act right now. And anyone could walk to the next place and so easily. It's very, you know, there's no friction in terms of moving employers. And because there's this war for talent, if you're going to have hard set rules and say, I'm going to mandate that you have to be in five days a week. One, you may not be getting the best talent. And two, you run the risk that, you know, people will kind of just leave. And again, I think there's different businesses and different organizations that that may be more true than others. But I can tell you, at least in the professional services and even bit in the real estate, that that what we're hearing is that flexibility is, is going to be key to one, retain talent and two, to be, you know, to be competitive for that top talent. There is a really interesting discussion and we're getting kind of off topic here, but it really depends on the business. Like you said, like professional service is a little bit more challenging to just do a permanently working from home versus a technology organization. You know, it's, it's probably a little bit easier at times to allow permanent work from home. And, and it, so it, it's going to be a very curious evolution over the next probably decade or so as organizations navigate through what they need to offer I mean, just on the comment of just how challenging the labor market is out there, I'll, I will I will throw this out there for our listeners because it's interesting. Frank, it was one of your competitors to remain nameless was trying to attract a talent away from from First National, 
and there was a signing bonus attached to it, which I had not heard of other than being a quarterback for the NFL team or what have you. So that, that I think is just where we are, where we are right now. There, there's a lot Maybe more than just, that going on. <laughs> I'll tell yeah, you. Fair. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair. Let's talk about just the impact it has, but bringing it back to real estate, the impact it has on office, because, you know, right now, still to this day, it's, you know, see a cubicles. Yeah. Uh, do you have a sense of the transition that's going to occur and what are people starting to think about the way to use office space differently as we witness and participate in this evolution of office? You know, I think, I think you said it right there in terms of how we use, and I think that's a critical, critical piece. You know, what is this physical space going to be used for in the future? You know, I think people thought, oh, this remote working, you know, people are going to give up tons of space. And we haven't seen that, you know, right at the very beginning, there was a lot of space that did come on market, a sublease, but that quickly, you know, kind of came, got pulled back because people still don't understand or don't haven't figured out what their longer term strategy. And as you know, you know, some of these leases are locked in for long periods of time. So I, I think you're right to say that this is an evolution. Does it necessarily mean that all of a sudden we're going to have empty office buildings? I personally don't think so. And we talked to our respondents, there was mixed. Some felt that there'd be much more impact and others felt less. Notwithstanding that, they clearly knew that the office and its purpose had to change. And I think what people realize is, you know, gone are the days where someone's going to have to want to come into the office just to sit there and pound on the keyboards, right? And, you know, I could do that from home and I don't have to have the two-hour commute, you know, an hour in the morning, an hour in the, in the evening to do. So I think you need to have that, the purpose of the office, at least, you know, what we heard is it's got to be a place where you can have, you know, collisions and collaboration you know, that, that's what's going to drive people and socializing. I'm not sure if you attended the uh, real estate forum that we had a couple of weeks ago in the first week of December, but I think, you know, I really liked what Richard Florida said. He was talking about, you know, the evolution of the new cities. And he said, you know, we're going to have to stop calling these the central business districts and going to have to start calling them the central socialization districts because that's why people come into the office. You know, and he made an interesting observation. He said, try and get a restaurant booked on Thursday, Friday, or Saturday. Try and go to a Leaf game or a Raptors game. Everything's full, but then you walk through the offices and they're fairly empty. So people want to come in to socialize. They want to come in to connect. They want to come in to collaborate. So I think as people think about the office of the future, that's what they need to kind of think through. Whether that means that people are going to reduce their footprint or not is still undebate. You know, I look at professional services firms, you know, you know, we're going to have that footprint, you're going to have, you know, more collaboration space, you're going to have more space per square foot per employee. Because if you recall, for the last decade, we've been shrinking, shrinking that footprint per employee to the point where really now, you know, in light of everything that's going on, that's just not sustainable. So that purpose and that need is definitely going to have to change. You know what? You said a word, Frank. Well, one, Richard Florida was awesome. And I encourage anybody that has the ability to go on to the real estate forums, inform a website and watch that video. I, I hope it's up there. I'm pretty sure it would be because it was just such an awesome you know, comment on just what's transpiring. A self-declared urbanist. Uh, if you don't know who Richard Florida is, you know, Google it. You mentioned the word collision, right? And I think that's such an interesting concept, right? Because that really is what's missing one of the work from home concepts. And so the office is going to be a place where you collide with your employees. You don't go there and sit there at your desk and just type out your, your keyboard. It, it's where that we encourage collaboration. But I love the concept of collision. I think about molecules like bouncing into each other, which is 
the way that energy is created, right? And so that that really is a great visual. Any more comments on any of your 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 feedback or your survey for office and the work involvement, or do you want to move on to ESG? I think we've covered that. Like I said, and this is something that's not, you know, I sit on our global real estate leadership team as well. And, you know, we talk about all the different markets and this is not immune to the Canadian marketplace. Everyone around the world are seeing the same impact on these, uh, on this office segment. And so what you are seeing is that, you know, some of the larger funds that previously were exposed, what I'll say to the big asset classes like office and retail are kind of reallocating their capital in these sectors. And you're seeing, you know, people that may have been overweight in office taking some chips, we'll call it off the table and redirecting it into, you know, whether it's industrial or multifamily. So we are seeing that globally happening, but that doesn't mean that this market, you know, that this office is a segment that's under significant pressure. I would not say that, you know, there is some uncertainty. And I think one of the things that we should come back to, if you've got a chance, is, you know, ESG and the impact on on these offices, because I think what's really important there is as people start to declare net zero, net zero, you know, what do you do with a portfolio when you got old buildings on there, you know, versus, you know, new buildings, it becomes a very interesting conversation when you put all of this together, ways of working, ESG, and all of that stuff. It's an interesting recipe. Well, you know, as part of that recipe, the, you know, the ESG component, let's focus on that for a minute. ESG is one of those things where, you know, we've talked about in the podcast for for a couple of years now, and people are you know, devoting a lot of attention to it. It's something that's tougher to measure. You know, we can't say that last year we were at 40% ESG and now we're at 50. You know, it's, it's fairly nebulous. But I guess then, you know, what were your takeaways from the conversations around ESG? Because that's probably where you draw the most value out of it is in the interview portion of it for people actually, you know, implementing ESG into their portfolios, valuing it. You know, there's been another topic more recently, but, you know, but actual hard value does it add? What was the feedback you received you know, around that topic? I'd probably say, first of all, again, I'd break it up into two. So when we talk to the institutional investors, the big pension funds, the big REITs, you know, ESG were, and that discussion was just table stakes. Like it was part of, an, of the organization. It was part of the criteria for investment decisions. It was something that, you know, the CEO at the top of the house was focused on. And it was quite different than, you know, the privates, we'll call it, you know, whether it's the low-rise developer or condo developer. While they saw that this was important and the right thing to do, the sense I got, there was a little less urgency of jumping on that. And even within there, I'd say, if you take a look at the tiers, the different tiers of privates, you had those that were innovative forward kind of looking and those that were the larger privates, they saw ESG being actually a competitive advantage. And so, you know, they were pushing really hard. So those were the conversations that we had. I think they all recognize how important it is. You know, while mostly we always talk about the E, we heard a lot more talking about the S and the G this time around. You know, and the other thing that I would probably say is that, you know, and I think that more and more people are kind of the light is kind of going on is that climate risk really can't be ignored and nor can ESG performance. And it's going to be in the long term, a rising factor in the long term value creation and preservation for some of these real estate companies and their assets. 
And so if they aren't looking at this holistically and are not looking at it, you know, from a way, they can actually lose value in their portfolio of assets. And I think that's the part, you know, we're already seeing that there's impact on valuations for those organizations that are ahead of the curve on ESG versus those that are lagging. And, you know, there've been a number of studies that have been prepared on this, you know, try and quantify it is much harder, but there's clearly, you could see that there's an impact. And I think it's only going to accelerate the same way we saw some of these other trends accelerate. We're just going to see this ESG and the focus around it accelerate even more. You know, just this year alone, you know, how many, how many real estate companies have put up their hand and, you know, proclaimed their net zero targets and all that. Like as soon as you start doing that, you've got to really start to make some measurable changes you're going to have to, you know, start communicating that to the stakeholders. And that's really going to hold everyone to account that it's not just, you know, lip service, right? Yeah. And that's kind of the transition I was alluding to when we started is three years ago, it was largely just noise around this topic, which is a good starting point, but we're, we're beyond that now. There, there was one anomaly I saw in one of the charts that, that uh, didn't really al- align with you know, what you call ESG priorities under the topic of real estate development issues. I know three of the top four were, of course, cost-related, but extreme weather was on the list. And this is a list of about 15 different items. And I was surprised to see extreme weather down near the bottom of the list of concerns when, you know, really that's a, that's a big part of, of the Enviro component of it. Not to say that, uh, that, they, that they we're misreading the data, but I thought that was a, you know, kind of a weird anomaly that it didn't uh, rank higher. Yeah, I'd agree with you because I think when you think about development, that's the biggest chunk of the carbon you know, impact and footprint that that building has. It's it's not the, you know, well, yes, the building, the, the ongoing maintenance is, but it's actually the development of new buildings that creates the biggest carbon input. So you would have thought that the E part would be more important on that side. So I'm not sure, Adam, I could dissect where that was coming from, other than to say that development is primarily in the hands of what I call privates, thinking about like our people that we've interviewed And so, as I'd mentioned, the privates were probably less fussed when it came to ESG than the institutional players that were predominantly in, you know, the investing of of real estate. That's the one thing I could take take away from right now, actually. Frank, I I mean, we're getting to know you as this is, you know, we've been this for a number of years. I would believe you to be fairly cerebral. So I'm going to kind of throw you a curveball here, if you don't mind. Oh, boy. Um, And I'm trying to look for the quote because I don't want to butcher it, but I, I can't find it as I'm kind of scrolling through, but I'll, I'll, I'll do my best. It, it was basically, and it was along this concept that there's this duality now with the, with the ESG um, forces within the commercial real estate community because there are those that are table stakes, right? All the public institutions, the REITs, the, you know, the life codes, et cetera. And then there are the privates, as you indicated, that, that don't necessarily really have the same motivations simply because they don't have the, they don't have the, the return on equity that really makes sense. And I think there was a quote in here that says something like bathrooms and kitchens still drive better yield than an, you know, an ESG investment along those lines. Yeah. And, and so here, and here's my curveball for you. Like, how do you, what do you do or what is the solution to start to get more buy-in from those that, that think that way, that think that, you know, I'd, I'd rather just spend my money on bathrooms and kitchens than really invest in, in more uh, ESG. is such a, a terrible, I start to get frustrated with ESG because it's really not like, we're really focusing on the energy or the environmental component. Social and governments is much more complicated as, as it relates to you know, property ownership. But 
from yeah. an environmental perspective anyway. What do you do? What do you say to your, your private mm-hmm. owners to, to focus more on it? I'm glad you kind of phrased that because I remember, and you got that actually pretty close, that quote, that, that, and I do remember that, and I do remember that quote. I guess what I would say there is what's going to drive that is the consumer. And like I said, there's, you know, in talking to the developers, the private developers, I would say there were some that were the more sophisticated than others. And I think some of them realized that the consumer is going to drive what we do and how we do it and if we're going to be successful. And so until we get the consumer that is focused on that, which we're seeing through the generational changes, I don't know about you, like I've got a 25-year-old daughter and you know she's talking about she wants to invest and she's saying, well, dad, show me, you know, I want to look at funds that just are, you know, have, you know, social good, environmental impact type investing. Like, when I was her age, I never thought of that. I was just saying, you know, where do I get my best return, right? So, so I think it's as this kind of generation is coming who are much more conscious of the impact the environment is having, they're going to demand that. And, they're, and, and I think, you know, some of the larger developers that I talk to recognize that and see that. Remember I mentioned that this, that's going to be their competitive edge. That's what they're saying. They're going to say, we, we recognize that there's going to be a, a, an increasing cohort of buyers that are going to see that this is going to become increasingly more important. And so we want to be there. And we believe that we are going to get our bigger share of sales because of that. And I think that the other investors that says, hey, I'd rather focus on the bathrooms and kitchens, which I get today, they don't recognize that. They may be left behind when it comes to this. And and and, and I genuinely believe that because I just, I, I, like I said, I don't know what you see, but I could see that there's definitely a change in terms of people's views on this and that they are willing to put their money towards that. We could spend days talking about ESG as, as you know, clearly as it's come up in your, your surveys, Frank, that it's one of the most important components of our, our, our industry, but we only have about 10 minutes left in our interview. So we need to keep moving. One thing I do want to mention, because I had kind of said, you know, E is really what we're talking about, because S and G is hard to really get involved into, into real estate. But I do want to point out, and this is sort of self-serving, but, you know, First National Occupy is now a building at 16 York, which is IWBI, International Well Building Institute, which is really more the S component, because it's just about, you know, the quality and the health of the individual occupier, uh, which is starting to get away from just energy efficiency and environmental Concerns and more about well-being of the occupants, and so you're seeing. And I, I'm pointing that out only because it's it's really ESG is is one big giant concept, and we're seeing more and more ability for real estate owners, occupiers, industry participants to contribute to ESG in one way or the other. Okay, that's enough of that. Let's move on. So the last component, that, the last sort of general theme, Frank, that you that you had kind of come out of this survey was or your reporting was sort of cost and competition. And I think if I can summarize that, that's really just the amount of capital available in the industry, in the marketplace. So let's just start there. And what kind of different components of that wall of capital are the survey respondents concerned about or thinking about? I just think that, you know, it comes back to that issue that we've been experiencing. You know, we've been on this long cycle and the amount of money that is going into, into real estate, you know, probably a function, number of factors, you know, globally allocation on the big sovereign wealth funds and pension funds, et cetera, has been increasing. You know, interest rates have been at historic lows. And so, you know, people are looking for, you know, inflation protected assets to invest in. 
And, you know, real estate is one of those, you know, whether it's their built-in lease escalations, or if you're a developer, built-in escalation in value of of land. But so I I think that's what's kind of driving that we're seeing, you know, this year, especially the rise of private funds as well, that have been set up and raised funds from, you know, high net worth individuals, you know, institutional investors, all going after you know, the different asset classes. And we talked about the ones, the darlings this year, which are the industrial and multi-res, but we're also seeing, you know, interest in the life sciences and, and studios as well. So there's just a ton of capital because of, I think, that function. We had historic lows on interest rates, lots of increased allocations to real assets and infrastructure. And you've got the, the perfect storm in terms of competition and pricing for limited, what I call institutional quality assets. And what's really resulted from there is that you can't find anymore what we call these good quality assets. So many of these funds are turning to the next piece, which is the development side. And they, if you can't buy it because it's not available, well, we're going to build it. And so we see that not only here in Canada, we've seen lots of development here in the GTA, but right around the world. There's a few interesting points in the graph on this topic. And I guess it's worth bearing in mind, of course, this is done kind of July every year. Is that the, the safe assumption? Yeah, more or less. July, August is, is the timing of this. Uh, it kind of moves maybe a month or so, depending. But yeah, that, that's about the right time. Okay, so the, the one that really caught my eye is uh, you've got the survey respondents. And in 2021, so this would have been for the previous year's report, 2021, 22% of the people thought equity was oversupplied. Fast forward to the most recent survey, and it goes to 60. So I'm thinking that might be a reflection of, you know, July and August of, of 2021. I mean, maybe it was not as active as now, but, or sorry, of the previous year, but it, it, that, was, that was a real, real sharp increase in terms of perception of the market. Maybe it's from the previous year, of course, just people were still on the sidelines at that point, not quite back in the market yet. Yeah. That, that would have taken place in uh, July of 2020 would have been the survey respondents when there was the much less over-perceived oversupply of equity. Exactly. I think it, it just ties into exactly what we just talked about. Like there's just that wall of capital, right? That there's just a ton of equity capital and compared to the prior year because people think that there's just going to be a, a lot more that's, that's going to be available because we just, we're just seeing that. So I think it's actually quite consistent with what, what we were talking about. There's a, a quote in the report and it has to do with the rising competition for deals, which we're talking about now. And it was concern about maintaining prudence. You know, you mentioned people piling into development deals, and of course, you can see that development yield has gotten much tighter with, uh, you know, with Absolutely. stabilized product. You know, all signs that this is correct. So, would you agree with that respondent's quote that maybe that you know, prudence might be placed secondarily behind other goals? I think prudence is the name of the game right now because what we've seen and ex- what I think the industry's experience is just significant growth in costs, whether it's input costs, labor costs, everything has just gone up. And I think what people are finding more more and more challenging is it's harder to underwrite some of these assets because you make these assumptions about terms of what it's going to cost you to build, what you're going to be able to, to get in terms of leases. And those costs can change quite significantly in a very short period of time. So I think to your point, you know, prudence is really important 
as they kind of embark on some of these development projects. And, and I think what's also changed is some of these mixed-use development projects or towers that are going up, you know, the scale of them are so big. And if you don't get it right, you can actually uh, inflict some, some pain <laughs> or quite a bit of pain in if it's not done right. Adam and I had the opportunity to inter- interview uh, Rob Coomer, who is the oh, yeah. chief investment officer and president of, of Kingset. And one of the, the conversation topics we had with him was like, you probably have access to way too much money. And he, and he, and he, he said, yeah, like I, we could raise N times 10 if I wanted to. I can't deploy it. I can't invest it in a prudent or economically yeah. you know, viable way. And because there just isn't amount, and Canada is just too small. I think is the reality. If you think about it that way, there's so much money chasing opportunity, chasing real investments. And there's just, there isn't enough of it out there ultimately. Yeah. yeah. And just to come back and Adam, I know you asked about prudence and I was coming at it from the cost perspective because the ex- escalation, but Aaron, where I think the other piece is important is we talked about this wall of capital. It's driven down you know, the cap rates on a lot of these asset classes. And, and I think, you know, what was interesting and one of the quotes that during the year that kind of resonated with me is, you know what, you can make money and lose money in each of the asset classes. And that's why you need prudence. So even though, you know, multi-res is like the darling, you know, when you're buying at sub three cap on some multifamily or, or a three cap, like those are pretty skinny returns. And, and so there's a lot of risk that's built in there, your CapEx risk and releasing risk. And so, you know, it, it's interesting. And, and I think back to what, you know, Rob Kumar said, I agree. There's just a ton of capital that's bid up the prices, bid down the cap rates. You got to be careful you don't make a mistake. And Canada is small. And that's why you're seeing, you know, large pension funds going all over the world to find other yep. places for opportunities. Yeah, because they've got too much money, they can't use Canada as the only as the only investment you know platform. Mm-hmm. I mean, because it's obviously it's closer to Adam and my world. It's happening in the debt market too. There is a ton of capital in the debt market pushing spreads down. It is incredibly competitive for sort of the A assets or the A opportunities. Even on the sort of the triple A assets, we're seeing it on the sub debt high yield component. There's so much money chasing that high yield. It seems like every month there's a new entrant saying, "Hey, guess what? I'm starting my own." High yield debt fund. That's like good how many luck. Mortgage, because, how many mortgage funds are out there? How many well, mix I mean, are out there? And I, I mean, I, I'm going to make numbers up, but there might be, you know, probably sort of eight to ten billion dollars of this high yield potential investment, and maybe two billion dollars of investment opportunities. Like that's the reality. Like it's it's yeah. almost a four or five to one. Like there's five times as much money out there chasing the one the potential ability, and then of course that just means that prices just keep 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 falling much to our chagrin at sitting at first national <laughs> we only got a couple of minutes left frank and i think we've got the most probably the most important topic to cover last just just the underlying theme throughout the report of affordability and you know <laughs> surprise surprise everybody it's a supply issue not a demand issue what kind of things did you come across or what stood out the most for you as you were putting this report together from our perspective, what we heard, which was really interesting, we've always talked about supply and supply is absolutely critical. But I think, you know, this year, what we heard more about is, you know, clearly there's a labor issue. There's clearly a supply issue. And there's also a government issue. And it's all of those three that are really, you know, kind of working together (laughs) to cause this. And we need innovation, really in all three of those areas 
to kind of address, not solve, but address the affordability issue. And, you know, I think one of my favorite quotes when we got into the PwC Emerging Trends this year came from one individual about the supply. The point was that, you know what, the supply actually exists. It's out there. We just need to frack it out, which was what uh, this individual said. So not unlike in, 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 the, uh, in Alberta where they're fracking out uh, gas, you know, they're saying that we can frack some more supply out of the existing. So what does that mean? It just means that both on the supply side, the government side and labor side, we need to be much more innovative on how we address this, this issue. You know, on the supply side, you know, areas to think about are, you know, rent to own and fractional ownership. Having the ability to convert, you know, larger units into multiple smaller units, like that's one area. There was an interesting quote that someone said is that we have 12 million empty bedrooms across Canada. Now, you know, and I, and I kind of stopped and I said, well, what are you talking about? I said, well, in your house, you probably have a four bedroom. Are all four beds being used? You know, I get where they were coming from, but the point is we just need to start to think a little bit differently on how we address the supply issue. And then the kind of, from my perspective, the other issue that's really impacting is that labor. Talking to a lot of the low-rise developers and high-rise developers, you know, they're saying their biggest concern is, you know, having the labor to build it. They said, we could sell much more, and, and, but the problem is we're not sure we can actually build it just because of the labor constraint. So, you know, that whole innovation around construction tech to kind of deal with that new initiatives and programs really to attract and develop more skilled trade labor, you know, from right from the immigration policies, that's got to be critical in order to be addressed. And then on the government side, so when you think about those three, you know, it's the common themes that we've heard, you know, Aaron, over the years, it's about, you know, innovative zoning, you know, faster approvals, all kinds of, you know, programs to kind of try and drive more supply that that that's critical. So that was again what we heard a lot about. The shift in the conversation was about we need to be much more innovative in how we address this. And there have been, you know, some interesting developments. And I'm I'm sure like I think um, in November 2021, you know, we know that the government announced, you know, a task force to kind of try and uh, address this and address some of these issues. The federal throne speech I know talked about a housing accelerator fund to help municipalities build more, better, and faster new rent-to-own programs. So there, there's stuff that's happening, and I'm not sure what your view is on this, but at least what I'm hearing and what our respondents have heard is this is the first time where we've heard all three levels of government talking about this issue consistently. And that's going to be important because in the past, we had these governments actually moving in opposite directions. You had the federal government that was trying to create more demand through immigration policy. You had provincial governments that were kind of, you know, restricting the the kind of what I'd call unfettered developments and sprawl. And then you had, you know, the municipalities that had, you know, to deal with the nimbyism. So, you know, you had kind of different policies kind of addressing this and, you know, that that's not going to work, right? They kind of have to work together. Yeah, I've, I've, that's been brought up before this podcast for sure, that getting uh, alignment levels of government is critical. And the other one that kind of rings true is it's it's not a it's not a silver bullet. There's not one solution. It's likely you know how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time. It's it's 15 different solutions all working to some degree to uh, bring it more manageable. Uh, an interesting data point from one of the graphs that uh, highlights you know what an issue this is under the topic of social issues. People voted on the the, you know, the top 10. Number two was pandemic. 
right behind number one being housing costs. So people in the middle of a pandemic thought the housing costs were more critical than a pandemic. I mean, that was, of course, July and August of this year, where we've probably been worried the least about the pandemic during that period of time. Maybe if you if you resampled people now with the Omicron yeah. in the news, maybe it would rank ahead. But I thought that really, really brought it home that in the midst of a global pandemic, people still rank that above. Very, uh, very interesting data point. By Frank, well, well said piece on, on affordability, you know, and I hope that my, my grandchildren live one day to see all these policies implemented. And I'm joking, of course, I, I know that there are actions being taken to improve affordability in a lot of the cities we live in. So everybody listen to the end. Here's the big reward for you. We're going to cover the top markets in the country and the best bets. So if you're one of those people who have, have this, this avalanche of capital just ready to go, this is the part where you can maybe, maybe make a little money. So Frank, do you want to do you want to summarize your thoughts on you know what the what the numbers showed for the the best markets in the country? Yeah, well, in terms of I guess the interesting thing is there's a lot of anticipation, but I think no surprise. You know, the top markets this year were clearly number one Vancouver, then Toronto and Montreal. I think the only interesting piece for me is number four and five, which were Ottawa and Halifax, compared to you know we historically have heard. Uh, Calgary and Edmonton in there, but they've clearly fallen to the bottom uh, for the last number of years because of you know the struggle and economic struggles that the, that the province is having. But those were the top markets to watch. The other item that we talked to that's always a, a highlight for the uh, PwC ETRE report is just best bets. You know where people are putting their money, and again, you know highly anticipated, but pretty much everyone knew that this was coming. It's warehousing, industrial. That was number one. And number two, where's the hotel and retail? I thought it would be hotel and retail for sure, Frank. <laughs> yeah. Right? Isn't that yeah, yeah, no, zig exactly. what everyone else is zagging or zag what everyone else is zigging? You know what? It's interesting you say that because I, I think while we were talking about this, people constantly saying, Yeah, I'm not going to put money there, I'm not going to put money there. But they thought that many thought, geez, some of this has probably been put really down really low, like it had been pushed down really low, and maybe there is some opportunity on some of that retail and hospitality, but it didn't meet our, our best bets. It was warehousing <laughs> and fulfillment at the top. And number two was rental housing, believe it or not, multi and single family. And then you have the uh, healthcare and life sciences was also a best bet, which is interesting, I guess, in light of what we're going through. The other one that was interesting, gentlemen, was uh, studios. And uh, you know, I never thought that that would be an institutional asset class, but there's a growing interest in studios. And I, and I guess it makes sense as as the world digitizes and people consume more digital content, they need more production houses to kind of produce this. And so we've seen a, a fairly big interest on that whole studio side as well. If I want to launch my TikTok career, I'd go and rent out a studio and Start dancing in front of the camera. I, gotta... yeah, I, I think I think these ones are talking about those big studios when they're doing these big movie productions that the Netflix and Amazons and others that are using. So so that that those are the ones that institutional buyers are actually looking at right now. That and like I said, healthcare and life sciences being the niche areas uh, from a best bet perspective, which was quite interesting and different than than historic. That's a new entrance to the list, is it not? The healthcare, yeah, uh, for, for best bets. I don't recall that being there there last yeah. year. Yeah, healthcare and life sciences, we're seeing, you know, a lot of interest, more so clearly, um, you know, south of the border. So you've got, you know, like the Boston area, you've got all these kind of uh, big, big kind of healthcare districts, we'll call it the tech around it. So it's, it's more, it's, it's the tech around it in terms of the research and development around uh, healthcare and life sciences, and then the actual manufacturing. So there's different aspects, but it's really that theme around healthcare, which is becoming, you know, increasingly more important, just 
in light of what COVID has has done and shone that light. So we, we've seen a lot more transactions and a lot more interest. And I think next year we'll, we'll probably see more of that. If I had money, I'd be buying uh, retail and hospitality, but that's just me. <laughs> patient I, capital, Frank. I'm, ex- I'm patient exactly. capital. Aaron, Aaron, I'm with you because I, I, like I said, I think a lot of those assets have really been beaten down. So, you know, if you've got a good operator that's got some, some guts out there, I'm sure there's money to be had there. Remember that quote, money can be made and lost in every asset class. So. Yeah, yeah. I like industrial or industrial or, re, or you know multi res at a three cap versus hospitality at an eight cap. I, you know, I'm, I'd be thinking. You can make I'd a few mistakes, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, I want to point out that I just invented a sub asset class where it's like small bay industrial, but it's small bay studio where you can rent out a 200 square feet and TikTok. And, and, <laughs> yeah, do your to get your TikTok career launched. Okay, you heard it here first, everybody. I want rights to that if anybody makes a go of it. Frank, we're out of time. Thanks so much for coming back on. Always a pleasure. Looking forward to next year. Everybody, we'll put the the link in our show notes. But you literally just have to type in "emerging trends in real estate" PWC, and it'll it'll pop up on your on your your search engine. Please go take the time to read it. Really, really interesting. Frank, again, you know, great conversation. Thanks for coming on. And great speaking to you guys again. All the best. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast After Show, where Aaron and I share our thoughts on the topic of the podcast that just happened. The first one I have, I do do want to jump into some thoughts on the data contained in the report. But first, I just want to touch on something that Frank said, but the benefit of being in the office is collisions, you know, collisions, positive collisions happen in the office. Some magic comes out of it. And I would say that this podcast that you and I both enjoy putting together so much was a collision. It was just chit-chatting at the office saying, Hey, what podcast do you listen to that covers our industry? And at the time, the answer was, well, there's none really. And that led to Googling the cost of podcast equipment and kind of went from there. So yeah, he's right. Positive collisions do happen, and this is evidence of one. Yeah, if we'd been working from home back then, this podcast would never have existed. That's for sure. <laughs> no, no. Uh, you need a bar with a beer in order to create podcasts. That's my philosophy. <laughs> Feel the magic. So let's jump into some of the. You know, it was, the report's huge. I mean, I encourage anybody to go and download it. I mean, what we covered was just the top layer. I mean, we could. This would yeah. be a six-hour podcast if we wanted to go through all of it. But I would encourage everybody to go download it and read through it. It's just, just, just Google yeah, just Google PWC Emerging Trends. That's all you're going to do, and it'll pop up. It's easy to find. Oh, yeah. It's downloadable, PDF, easy to read, easy to look at, lots of colorful graphs. And just put it somewhere where you're going to read it. Save it on your phone, whatever it is. You will definitely read something in there that at some point in the next month or so, you'll be in a conversation, and it will be completely relevant to what you're discussing. It's definitely one of the highlights of the year going through it. So that being said, I mean, I had a bunch of notes from when I went through it that we did not cover in the main part of the podcast just because of time. One of the big ones that came up was equity oversupply. And, you know, we've talked about this topic in a few different podcasts now, but equity oversupply went from 22%. People thought it was oversupplied in 2020 to 60% in 2021. That's a massive jump and purely indicative of the fact that people were just sitting on the sidelines until basically the fourth quarter of 2020, and then trying to make up for it. We've had a number of guests on in 2021 who talked about that, just the pent-up demand factor 
And that kind of increase in the perceived oversupply of equity is for sure indicative of that. Yeah. Well, if you go through some of the concerns that come out of the survey, that's right there, right? It's the affordability, housing costs and availability, construction material costs, labor costs. It's all just about, there's just so much cash chasing opportunities. The price of everything is going up. And then therefore inflation, I think for the first time in probably a long time, is near the top of issues of concern of all the real estate leaders, and not surprisingly. Well, yeah, inflation showed up, I think, number four on that list of concerns, and we would not have ranked last year, obviously. That is a new entrant on the concern, and it is top four, and rightfully so. And these surveys were done, what I think you thought, October, right? Kind of like collections throughout sort of Q2, Q3 of 2021. We're now sitting here sort of late 2021, and I think inflation has probably raised up of concern since then. Yeah. I mean, number one is labor. In all reality, I don't even know what you do about that. I mean, that could, that could be another hour-long podcast. We've identified it as an issue numerous times. What's the solution? I mean, my God, that's a slow-moving ship to try and you know, re-steer. Interest rates did make the list, and that will be continue to be relevant throughout 2022. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of planned increases that the Bank of Canada should be delivering. So, I think that should be on there. But yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if you re-polled all those same people now that inflation might not jump up a couple of notches on the concern scale here. Interestingly, I mean, we always talk about the top. It's kind of fun to look at the bottom too, like exchange rates, currency exchange rates, taxes, municipal and federal taxes, threats of terrorism, which I think at some point historically would have been near the top is now at the bottom. Higher education costs is something that people aren't that concerned about. Municipal service cuts health and safety related policies. Like there's a whole bunch of interesting things that it's just cyclical, right? The way these things kind of come and go. NIMBYism, which is one of our favorite topics is kind of in the middle, but closer to the bottom right now. Again, I think that's simply because because of the liquidity, the wall of capital, whatever you want to call it, and just the rising cost throughout the real estate community. These things just aren't as big of a concern because they're not as impactful on bottom line revenue. And maybe the concerns that are ever present, people just get numb to them over time. NIMBYism would have made the list every year for the last hundred years in, uh, you know, at least in Toronto, I could speak to. So maybe people get numb to it just as an ever present condition. So it's not going to shoot up to the uh, top category in terms of the risk that people perceive. I was, uh, I was pleasantly surprised to see that debt availability oversupplied as well, but not as dramatic as equity. And I don't know if that speaks to, lender availability in 2020 versus 2021, but it, it did not seem the same very large spike in uh, in oversupply. So yeah, I don't know, what is your read on that one? Well, I wonder if that's just a previous year was kind of pandemic impacted. And so there was a bit more normalization in 2021. And that's why we're just seeing a little bit less concern about it. Yeah, yeah, true. Another one I thought was interesting, there's a chart in there about direct investments into Canada. Asia registered in 2018, but not any other years. I mean, I was surprised, I, you know, as you read the papers, especially ones that are, you know, BC focused, just raised as a big issue that there's a large influx of foreign investment. Maybe it's not uh, as dramatic as we think. Yeah, it is curious. We've seen that in the lending community. We've seen that where there isn't nearly as much activity anymore. I think 2018 was sort of that, particularly in, in the West Coast, where there was just so much Asian capital coming and looking for, really, it was about getting money out of China more than it was getting money into Canada. But yeah, no, I'm surprised too. I mean, if you look at this chart, the United States, of course, is the largest, 
followed by other Americas, which I guess will clearly be Middle and South America as a big component. And I don't see a lot of that, those funds. So I'm not sure exactly where that's going. But I don't know many Brazilian pension funds that are buying real estate or whatever, Argentinian life insurance companies buying real estate in Canada. But clearly it's happening. These guys would know better than you and I. Yeah, maybe just the finance vehicle is different. Because yeah, it must be my experience would be the same. I've not really had too many calls down to Buenos Aires to discuss uh, finance. So yeah, and not surprising, yeah, America, biggest inbound and outbound investment. In, that's very, very obvious real estate advice. <laughs> that's yeah. significant players. So that makes perfect sense to me. We've talked about this on other podcasts too. One of the issues raised was rising competition for deals. And the quote from it is concern about maintaining prudence. We have gotten this topic before. But yeah, I mean, you would see yields reflecting that, that maybe people are not not acting entirely prudent the way they would in a less competitive environment. I'm on the credit side and I'm just going to jinx it now, but inflation's up. Everybody knows how central banks combat inflation. The prediction is that inflation will continue to rise. That wall of capital causes prices to increase. Inflation goes up. The only way to combat inflation is to rise interest rates, to raise interest rates. So, I mean, I think central banks all over the world have been hinting at raising interest rates, primes going up across 2022 and beyond. Rising interest rates haven't happened in decades, like literally <laughs> multiple decades. We haven't had rising interest rates. And that, I just think there's going to be a lot of people going, what the heck's going on here? My 3% cap rate and my 4% interest rate don't jive together. No, that's called negative leverage. That doesn't make sense. It actually makes your yield go down, not up. And I just, it'd be really interesting to see what happens over the next couple of months or couple of years, I guess. And I just jinxed it. You know, we're going to see negative interest rates coming soon just because I just predicted they're going to go up. Right. So, <laughs> yeah, it is funny. If you want to talk to real estate practitioners about negative leverage, if you're talking to somebody who's experienced it, they're generally going to have quite a bit of gray hair on their head. That's been seen as a very good thing for a very long time. And yeah, I mean, I hope that, uh, I hope that that remains a permanent situation, but of course it is something to be aware of. I guess the other counterbalance, of course, is an inflationary environment that you end up with more income on your properties to reflect that, which can hopefully offset yeah, your, some of the effects of higher interest. Are, your and, expenses oh, are going up too, though, Adam. It doesn't yeah. work that way. <laughs> yeah. You're not going to see a whole bunch of inflation on rents, but not inflation on taxes and utilities. So anyway. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. I mean, and again, now, even with our after show, we've still only covered 15% of the report. So again, I encourage you all to go out there, do a deep dive on it. It will really set you up for a productive 2022. Thanks everybody for listening to the end. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.